The Disability Report with Karen Key. Well, as usual, we start the show chatting with Ari Sealis. He's the National Director of the Quad Para Association of South Africa. And this month we'll be chatting about road safety, the Dave Baum motorcycle tour, and employment for people with disabilities. Ari, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Karen, good evening. Thank you. And sorry for dropping off Well, last we, had, month, we had phone line issues last time. I'm back in full force. Sound, the line sounds so much better this month. I can't tell you. I'm so thrilled. But Thank now, you. the road safety, that is a constant story with you. you it's, it's something yes, that I you're very impassioned about. Yeah. It, you know, it would be remiss of me to not have it on the agenda, especially with Easter coming mm. up. You know, and um, Quasar is very active in creating awareness around the cause of spinal cord injury. And one clear one that's proven by the stats that if you're not wearing your seatbelt, the chances uh, of a catastrophic injury in a road crash are far greater. So, buckle up, because Quasar does not want new members. But more and more equally important, that is, if you're in a crash, how to self-preservation, call that, that's a better term to use. But what causes crashes? And now, and I'm sure I've said it before on your program, distracted driving is now the world's biggest cause of road crashes. That's texting because of your change of focus and your eye focus from your phone to the road while you're doing or receiving a text. And then, of course, using your phone, talking and driving. I'm not talking about holding the phone. That's, the offense is not holding the phone. The offense is engaging in the conversation which takes your mind off what you're really doing. So Quasar encourages motorists, not only because it's holiday season, to use their seatbelts and don't text and drive. It is the biggest cause of road crashes in the world. And uh, I might have said to you previously before, I was on the beachfront once, and there was a youngster who was texting and walking, walked straight into me. (laughs) You know, he was totally engrossed in in texting. And things have changed. We need to be mature about how we manage our mobile phones. So, you know, I've had a plug, and I'm sure that if somebody changes their driving behavior because of that, well, I would have made one small difference. Well, why not when we get into the car, put the phone in the boot? Then you're not tempted. Then you're not tempted to do anything with it. Yeah, we have a, a saying: phone off, car on, car off, phone on. We, you know, it's very difficult. We've got into such bad habits, mm. but um, give it some thought. But preservation is the theme. It's very important what you said earlier there, Aria, but it's not so much about the holding the phone. It's about engaging in that conversation because then, as you say, your mind is completely on something other than the road. Corin, there's no law that says you can't eat a burger when you drive. There's no law that says you can't smoke when you drive. So what's the difference between holding a mobile phone? It's holding the conversation mm. that is what, is what is going to get you into a compromising position. And I think people don't really understand that. You know, they think, well, if the phone, say, I'm not holding the phone, I'm fine, no, you know. I'm not doing distracted driving. I've got a, a car kit, a hand mm. It's not about that. It's just have your conversations when your vehicle is off. Right. Hopefully people have taken note of that. But now I'm very excited to talk about Dave Barr and his motorcycle tour because we've been following him on Facebook. The man is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, he's crazy too. <laughs> this um, former South African-American, he's fought in a number of wars and he's lost his two legs in the Angolan War and um, took his cause back to America, lives a, a life of traveling the world on a Harley Davidson, um, inspiring people and he's been around Russia, all over the world. And he tries to drop into as many Cheshire homes as possible to say, hey, guys, you know, you can still do a number of things. It doesn't mean you must aspire to own a Harley. Uh, but um, 
you know, he's a great motivation to people that might be on the verge of giving up or wondering what's the point of going on or what, what more is there to, to do in life. So Dave is coming out to South Africa from the 30th of April until the 18th of May. He'll be riding his Harley 5,000 kilometers um, down to Cape Town, uh, Setchfield, Port Elizabeth, Durban, and he'll be dropping into a couple of the Cheshire Homes facilities. Um, it, it will be, they will be raising funds for Cheshire Homes and Quasa, but we don't see that as the, as, the, as the objective. We see it that he can just spread his word of motivation and hope. Um, awesome guy to Google. So if anybody wants to give a chance to meet uh, world-famous Dave Barr on his Harley-Davidson, double amputee, how he rides it, and he'll have a team of, of sort of um, riders with him, then give Quasa a call on 0860 Rolling, and we'll tell you for those uh, two weeks exactly where he'll be at what time and we'll make sure that you get a chance to meet him. Well, just to give people some idea, he's got two Guinness World Records. I mean, you know, and I was reading something as well. It said, to date, only 89 people have successfully toured the world on a motorcycle, but he's the only one to do it on a Harley. And if this wasn't enough, he's also the only disabled person to have accomplished this feat. He's also written two books. They're busy making a documentary about his second trip, which was the one across Australia, which was all that was his second Guinness World Record. I mean, the man is absolutely phenomenal. Just go onto Facebook, put Dave Barr in there. You'll be blown away. Yes. Another call to, to your listeners, um, Karen, is um, if there's some bikers out there that want to ride a section with them, give us a shout and we'll, put a, you know, we'll tell you the routine. He is hoping that some bikers get out there and do a couple of hundred kilometers with them. Yeah, he sounds like the most amazing man. Absolutely phenomenal. Okay, well, I'm going to get him to meet you as well. Well, Karen. I'm hoping so. I was, I was pushing for that there. But, Ari, you, you kind of picked that up, you did you? On the back of a Harley. <laughs> oh, my and, goodness. Uh, we just hope he drops you off back. <laughs> In the rough place. Don't know about the back of the Harley, but I'd love to chat with him when he's here. All <laughs> <laughs> right, let's talk about employment for people with disabilities. That's always a sore point. Okay, Corin. Good also just to punt some opportunities. Of course, I could talk about the failure of the Employment Equity Act, but across our table comes regularly requests for CVs of people with disabilities uh, for opportunities. We could interrogate whether they were career or just job mainly job. People don't see people with disabilities as career opportunities, be that as it, be that as it may. Quasar, we've just employed a couple of people whose job is to get CVs from people with disabilities, get them into a, um, an, a, a good condition that they can be easily um, uh, looked at and uh, into a database format, and we will then circle, circulate those to all sorts of inquiries that come our way. So, any person with a disability, no matter what your disability, you don't have to be a quadriplegic or paraplegic. We want your CV. We can move it around. And who knows, you might get that call. Wow, what is that? That is an amazing opportunity. So to contact Quasa on info at quasa.co.za or, of course, you can call the Quasa call center number 0860-ROLLING and um, we'd love to see who you are, what skills you've got and what you want to do. Fantastic offer, Ari. Thank you very much. I hope the listeners out there have got those details. And if they don't, they can always email me and I'll pass them on. Ari, wonderful stories this evening. And um, hopefully people will be careful over the Easter weekend. I wish them all a safe Easter and responsible driving. Thank you, everybody. And you have a great, great Easter. And we'll speak to you next month. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. Good night to you.
Ari Sealis is the National Director of the Quad Power Association of South Africa, who own Rolling Inspiration magazine. If you want you to get your own copy of Rolling Inspiration magazine, they're now available at pick-and-pay pharmacies, as well as being sold by subscription. If you don't have a pick-and-pay pharmacy near you, you can still get your own copy by subscribing. And to do that, you need to contact them via email on risubscriptions at telcomsa.net. You can also find them on the net on www.rollinginspiration.co.za. And then as Ari said, no matter what your disability, if you would like to forward them your CV, please do that. You can either email them for further information on info at quasa.co.za, and it's Q-A-S-A, or you can call them on 0860-ROLLING, or take a look at the website. It's www.quasa.co.za. The Disability Report with Karen Key. Well, tomorrow is World Autism Awareness Day, and joining me now is Salome Gertzema, a senior lecturer in speech-language pathology at the University of Pretoria, with a special interest in autism spectrum disorder. Salome, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello. Yes, good evening. Um, thank you for having me. Well, you know, we often talk about autism on the show, but I, I think we need to start off by explaining what autism is, because it's now, we don't call it autism anymore. It's really autism spectrum disorder, because there's a number of different things that fall under that. But if you could just explain to us exactly what we need to know about autism. Yes, sure. You know, it's, it's quite a complex um, condition. It's a lifelong condition. Uh, that occurs as a result of disordered brain growth, um, primarily, and the structure and development of the brain is also impaired. It's believed to stem from a genetic predisposition, and it's uh, triggered by environmental factors. Um, These uh, supposed genetic predisposition then dictates susceptibility to develop autism, which is, you know, it's almost like being susceptible in a family to have, for instance, cancer. Um, uh, it affects four to five times more boys than girls, and there are a vast number of ways that one can manifest autism specifically. And as a result, this condition is now more often referred to as autism spectrum disorders, as she just said. Uh, it is through the new DSM-5, which is the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, reflecting a consensus that four previously separate disorders are now actually being seen as a single condition with different levels of symptoms. Um, It encompasses uh, previously the autistic disorder that we spoke about, just autism. Asperger's is now also included, Asperger's disorder, childhood disintegrative disorder, and pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. Um, I, must I, I can continue about that, some of the characteristics. If we'll, you like. we'll get to that in a moment. But the one interesting thing, though, you mentioned there that is something where the child would be predisposed. So it was something that was going to occur regardless. Yet I, I understand that if children are not diagnosed before the age of three, the window of opportunity for early intervention has then already closed. That's correct. But how no. difficult is it to diagnose this at, in such a young child, though? What I mean, uh, symptom-wise. And symptom-wise, you know what, it, it, is, it is complex and it takes a, a, a good eye to actually, you know, be, being able to diagnose it. Um, I would just, uh, for the listener's sake, say if they've got any concerns regarding the few red flags that I'm going to mention now, please speak to your child's family doctor for a referral to the mental pediatrician or a pediatric neurologist. Um, things that they can be on the lookout even before the age of three years because now you mentioned the um, early intervention is very important and specifically in the light of recent research for instance that's been published in the New England Journal of Medicine which pinpoints the patchy changes in the development of the brain already in the womb so you see um, they're already talking about this prenatally 
So if you have a child and some of these things pop up in terms of communication, for instance, there's no babbling by the age of 11 months, no simple gestures by 12 months. You know, if the child doesn't wave bye-bye like child children mm-hmm. usually do, no single words by 16 months, no two-word phrases by 24 months, for instance, you know, saying baby sleeping or daddy going, no response when the child's name is called or, you know, even inconsistent response to being called by their own name. And then the loss of any language or social skills at any stage. And, and secondly, if you've got certain behavioral characteristics that stand out like odd or repetitive ways of moving the fingers or hands in front of the face, for instance, oversensitivity to certain textures or sounds or lights, and then these children tend to have a lack in interest in toys, or they play with them in an unconventional or unusual way. Instead of, you know, taking the car and going brum, brum, they line them up or they spin them or they open and close parts. They also may have some compulsions or rituals, so they have to perform activity in a special way or a certain sequence. And you know what? It leads to a tantrum. If you break that sequence, you'll find that and that happens quite often. Preoccupations with unusual interests such as light switches, doors, fans, and also sometimes unusual fears that they might have. And and lastly, I think in terms of social red flags, they really tend to make eye contact when one tries to interact with them. They don't want to play socially intentioned games like peekaboo. We all know we teach Mm -hmm. our children that game from from very little age on. And they don't point to show something they're interested in. For instance, just a a simple example of a plane passes over. You know, we just look daddy and we point and everybody's following what's going on. They don't do that from themselves. Um, they also really smile um, socially, which is, which is some of the red flags that should be on the uh, lookout for even before the age of three years. That we can have, you know, early intervention, which is very important in this case. The one thing you mentioned, though, Salome, which I found quite interesting, you said that the loss of any language or social skills at any age, which would mean, in my mind, that they would have had them to start with and then they would suddenly lose them. Is that correct? That's correct. It's, oh, it's not okay. So it's not a common thing, but it does happen sometimes in terms of the environmental triggers that you have. Um, usually these children, you'll pick them up. And if you know what to be on the lookout for, yes, then it will go with simple development across milestones. But there are certain cases where children develop normally. They're typically developing child. And then all of a sudden they start losing milestones, which they previously had. They perhaps had two words, utterances or sentences. And then all of a sudden they just, they're starting to be quiet. They don't speak anymore. So what can actually be done before the age of three that could have an impact on the development of the child? Okay. Um, early intervention is then very, very much important. Now, as a speech-language pathologist myself, um, we all play a critical role in the screening, screening to just determine the possible, you know, uh, if there's possibly ASD uh, involved. And then also early detection at risk individuals, people who've got some of these children, who've got some of these signs. And then we make referrals for a specific diagnosis. Um, I think it's perhaps important to say here that speech-language pathologists who acquire and maintain necessary knowledge and skills, we are able to diagnose autism. But typically as a part of a diagnostic team or any other multidisciplinary collaboration, so it includes pediatricians, pediatric neurologists, occupational therapists and so forth and then immediately we start off with early communication intervention so all of these things that go wrong in terms of this quadrant of impairments you know the social impairments and the behavioral stuff we all 
start immediately as a group and we treat these, you know, you can treat certain skills to the parents as well to try and make up for what this child has lost. And, and you know, the earlier the better because then this child can sort of be part of a, of a social uh, uh, environment again. I was reading some interesting information. I think you sent it through at one point there, Salome, was the fact that some people, I don't know if possibly quite rarely, is that some people are only diagnosed as adults. That's correct, yes. Um, it's, it's usually uh, uh, somebody who really is autistic from age, you know, whenever they, 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 they're starting off with the autism, but then they develop and they are higher-functioning autistic individuals, so they never diagnosed. What happened then is such a person that may have suffered considerable emotional and academic damage due to this fact that they've never been diagnosed because they just, you know, tend to adapt to the situation. But then it went hand in hand with incorrect treatment or no treatment at all. So when this autism is finally detected as an adult, they usually suffer from other conditions then, which is a concomitant factors such as depression due to difficult circumstances, problems with aggression, and etc. Um, many of these are also called savants. They've got specific special skills that, you know, it, they, it makes them stand out as individuals also. And then you should realize that all people living with autism present complex and varied mental conditions and impairments, although those within the spectrum of autism display a myriad of similar behavioral characteristics. So, uh, yes, some of them go through and they tend to compensate in such a way that it's not really picked up until they are adults. Now, as a speech-language pathologist yourself, um, how important is your role? Um, well, <laughs> I, I must not blow my own horn. No, but I mean, <laughs> no, I, no, you, really, we've got a huge do. role to please play. And, and, and not only as individuals and as speech-language pathologists. As I say, it is truly a multidisciplinary collaborative effort into treatment. But what we do usually is, is on the assessment side, um, we assess certain things that they, they should be able to do, and then after assessment, you aim treatment in terms of, for instance, the initiation of spontaneous communication and functional activities, because you would like them to communicate across social partners and settings, um, the comprehension of verbal and nonverbal communication in all settings, um, a range of social functions, so that they promote development of uh, friendships and social networks. It's very, very important. Um, I also see that, you know, the isolation of a person with ASD and a family with somebody who has ASD in the family. It is a big, big problem. Um, and I would like the listeners to know, you know, if you know of someone in your family or, or you know of someone that knows someone even, that you can join a group. Don't, don't isolate yourself. There are chat groups, the social media these days, even Facebook, you know, it's a fantastic way of, of getting support that you want. Um, on, the, on the other side, verbal and nonverbal means of communication, we address those. So, for instance, we would um, aim at including natural gestures, things that they don't acquire by themselves. Speech, if, if the speech is also a problem, um, signing, pictures, written words, all of the aspects of communication. And then event, evidently also then access to literacy and academic instruction um, at the end of the day because they also... Um, unconventional, if you can say that. We, we think of them as being unconventional, but, you know, on the other side, autistics in just a tongue-in-the-cheek thing is that they think of us as being unconventional as mm. well. But to, to sort of meet one another in the middle so that we can understand 
autism spectrum and then, you know, sort of aim and help them in terms of curricular, extracurricular and also vocational activities at the end of the day. How important is working with the family? Do you do that, Salome, work with the families of these children? Definitely, definitely. It is not, as I said, it's not only the individual with autism. Um, We have to adapt to differences in families also in South Africa because we've got different cultures, languages and resources. But it is a family effort to understand the problem that is autism spectrum disorders and then also in terms of the treatment because, you know, trying to just, uh, aiming certain certain skills at this person with autism spectrum disorders and the people around them do not know how to enhance these skills. So it is a, in terms of treatment, it is definitely also a family affair and then also understanding, you know, and just support in general. Is it one of those conditions that uh, you, you say with different cultures and different understandings possibly of what this is, do you find that there's a stigma possibility in some communities to families who have a child with autism? I think, yeah, stigma is perhaps a little bit of a harsh word, but yes, you know, misunderstanding. Uh, misunderstanding leads to misdiagnosis or even not even diagnosis at all at the end of the day. And then if they do not understand the problem and nobody is there to support them with this diagnosis process and, and you know, describing where it comes from, that it's not something that they've done wrong, for instance, you know, pregnant mothers, that mm. it's not something prenatally or perinatally that they have done wrong, but it is a developmental thing in terms of, of a brain development that, you know, it is just there's genetic predisposition and so forth. And also at the end of the day, genetic counseling to make them accept autism spectrum disorders in, in totality more. Is this something that you would have to possibly, some people might have seen it in the family or can you suddenly just be the first one in the family that would have a child with autism spectrum disorder? Um, well, in terms of the genetic predisposition, um, I would say so, but you know, that's also a little bit on the speculation side at this stage. I think what I can say is if you have a family member who has autism spectrum disorder or there is a second sibling on the way, at least go for genetic counselling, um, which because we know of the genetic predisposition. Right, but it is one of those things that, as you said, we, well, we said in the very, very beginning, if you see anything that bothers you, and I always like to think that mothers do know best when it comes to their children. They'll know when Definitely. something isn't quite right or they're not really happy about something. Don't let people tell you that you are just being a fussy mom. Rather take your child to be assessed. It's, 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 not, it's, it's far better than not taking the child to be assessed. Absolutely, absolutely. At the end of the day, mom knows best. Yes, always. And you, yeah, and, and you want what's best for your child in any case. So rather be a, a safe mom on the one side, then, then later on going back and said, but, you know, nobody told me. I could have, you know, intervened quite earlier and then perhaps the, the progress of the whole thing wasn't as harsh or severe on my child and the family. Well, I have you very kindly sent through some notes, Salome. Would you mind very much if I offered the, the red flags that you, you sent me, those, the communication and behaviour and social red flags? If anybody's wanting to have a look at those, those red flags, would you mind if I sent them out? No, you're more than welcome. Those are um, from Sashla as well, the South African Speech, Hearing, Language Association. And yes, I think that would promote awareness and being tomorrow being International Autism, Autism Awareness Day, yes. Day, that would definitely help. Yes. I, 
I think. So if anybody's wanting a copy of those, the, all that information on autism and autism spectrum disorder, you could email me at disability at safm.co.za and with, only with pleasure I will send those to you. But Salome, thank you. I think you've explained it so well and I think people now have, a, well, as well as myself, have a far better understanding of autism spectrum disorder, what it is and how we can possibly go a long way to assisting children with it if we are picking it up early enough. So thank you very much indeed for your time. You are most welcome. Have a lovely evening. Thank you, you too. Good night to you. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Salome Gertzema is a senior lecturer in speech-language pathology at the University of Pretoria with a special interest in autism spectrum disorder. For more information, you can contact the Speech-Language Hearing Association on 86 or take a look at their website. It's www.saslha.co.za or if you want a copy of the notes on autism spectrum disorder, it also includes all the red flags for possible autism. Drop me a mail at disability at safm.co.za and I will send you those notes with pleasure. The Disability Report with Karen Key. Well, founded in 1929, the Cape Town Society for the Blind is an innovative, not-for-profit, community-based service organisation situated in Salt River in Cape Town. They've recently appointed an orientation and mobility instructor who will aim to train 1,500 blind people annually to improve their personal independence. Well, joining me on the line now is Lizelle van Vex, CEO of the Cape Town Society for the Blind, or CTSB as it's known. Lizelle, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello, Corin, and thank you so much for the invitation. It's wonderful to join you. Well, it's lovely to chat with you again. The last time we spoke, you we were, we were with Orion, if I remember that's, rightly. <laughs> that's right. That's about, that was about two years ago. Yeah, it was a while and, ago. And uh, what a wonderful organization. Mm. And I'm still associated with them. And I think that the move was good for both of us. Um, for them to be uh, to get the, the the opportunity to be exposed to new leadership and for me to take over somewhere else. Well, rather exciting what's going on at the at the Cape Town Society for the Blind with these uh, orientation and mobility instructors. Tell me a little bit about what they are. Okay, orientation and mobility practitioners. The okay. new word is practitioners because okay. they're actually specialists in what they're doing. Um, they play a very important role in ensuring the independency of visually impaired people and obviously also blind people. Um, Corin, if you lose your sight, um, independence training will help you get you back on your feet. And we can we can actually not imagine life without O and M, um, you know, practitioners. And unfortunately, there are so um, there, there are so few of them in our country. O and M training provides a person with a tool to economic independence. But we can speak about that now. I will just give you a chance to to maybe prompt a few more questions. Oh, well, I, I was just curious as to how an O and M, which is an orientation and mobility practitioner, actually adds to the productivity of a blind person. I think because that yeah. is very. We were talking earlier in the show about you know job opportunities and and being able to work and obviously something like this. How would that impact on a blind person to be able to be more productive? Okay, um, fantastic question. A fully trained person, blind person, will be able to work anywhere they like as long as they have relevant qualifications and access to appropriate assistive devices. Um, And I know these assistive devices are so expensive. I know that. But companies have access to corporate social investment funds. And if you can just put a little bit of that money towards assistive devices, you can 
um, supply a blind person with or keep them out with the correct environment. Although these devices are often very costly, as I said, many companies are prepared to walk the extra mile as part of their corporate social investment programs. ONM can also play a major role in the lives of unemployed people. For instance, to become mobile and teaching them on how to start their own small businesses and how to function optimally within a corporate environment. O&M training also um, helps them not to depend on government for handouts, but to live a normal life as far as possible. And I think that is what Cape Town Society for the Blind aims to do. We don't want people to stand in queues and wait for a grant. We want to offer them or to open a door for them to be independent. This year is our 85th anniversary. It is, Cape Town Society for the Blind is really an amazing history. And our slogan for this year is inspiring independency. And this falls totally in line with our slogan. Now, so, our, our objective. Something like this, Lizelle, what does this do to the well-being, both the mental, I would imagine, in a lot of times, the mental and emotional well-being of the blind person themselves? Like everybody, a blind person wants the freedom to go to the local shops and the bank, to visit friends, to attend church, and carry out ordinary daily skills like you and I. I mean, I can get behind my wheel and drive myself wherever I want to be. You know, a few years ago, I fell... I fell between rocks in Hermanus, and I broke both my hands, my, my, my wrists. It was an, a terrible experience. I landed within four hours. I landed in theater without, I look, Mom, no, no hands, you know, type mm. of thing, for two months. And I felt, I experienced to be totally, totally dependent on others. I couldn't drive myself anywhere. I couldn't do a thing for myself. I couldn't shower. I couldn't do a thing. My husband had a field trip. But at the <laughs> end of the day, I was totally dependent on everybody else. Blind people want to do so without being dependent on another person to guide them or to do things for themselves. They, this requires both mobility and skills of daily living. And mobility can be achieved in many ways. For some visually impaired people, a guide dog is the ultimate solution to getting around in the sighted world, both independently and safely. But many people who cannot see well or at all live in circumstances and places where having a guide dog just isn't possible. These people need an effective alternative means of independent mobility. Let's take the example of transport. I just want to share this with you. When depending on somebody else, the blind person ends up having to also pay for the person accompanying them to their destination. For instance, I'm asking you to take me from Atlantis to Cape Town. Then I need to pay that person in transport and time. I must double up your pay for, for our transport costs, and many times, yes, in some of our rural areas, people ask our blind people to fetch them some water from water holes. It happens every day. This is a reality that we are dealing with.
And they need to pay for that as well, I would assume. Exactly. They must pay them to fetch them water. Um, isn't that absolutely... Yeah, but now, the, the, I, I, I can't even put a word to that. So I mentioned at the beginning of this interview that you've appointed this orientation and mobility um, person to come and work for the, the society now, and they're aiming to train 1,500 blind people annually. But there's something like 1.4 million blind people in the country. How many of these ONM practitioners are you going to actually need across the board? Yeah, this, this, is, this is daunting. Um, I don't have all the facts on how many practitioners will be needed to cover this vast number of people. But in my personal opinion, I believe that there should be at least 10 O&M practitioners in each province in our country to make a positive difference in our country as a whole. The need is so great that uh, we, we, don't, we really don't even know where to start. But at least we have one excellent trained person Nambuso is, is fantastic. She's on this side of, of, of our mountain. And then we have an amazing woman, Sharon, at um, Institute for the Blind in Worcester, Sharon Hosen. So we, both, both, of our, both of our organizations have access to the best, the best in the Western Cape. But now we've been talking all the time about these O&M practitioners. What exactly are they training the people to do? Are they training them to walk with a cane? What are they doing? Okay, let me, let me just um, take you into our world for a, a short moment. Uh, mobility can be achieved with the help of a long white cane. With proper training, the cane becomes an extension of the blind person's sense of touch. In order to use the cane effectively, the visually impaired person must develop accurate sensory response to all kinds of information provided by their environment. And I'm taking you through a journey now. There's also a very precise technical skill required to teach manipulation of the cane in order to make it a safe and viable tool for O&M. If, if I just receive a white cane today, right, you give me a white can and now you say I must walk with it. it. I can really land up in, in a lot of problems. So I need to be pro- properly instructed. The only instructor has the task of teaching the client these skills. Especially for outdoor activities, a white cane can help you with crossing streets safely and guiding with routes between home and work, going to the shop, etc. Um, training also includes skills of daily living, um, how to make yourself a cup of coffee, uh, prepare something in the microwave without burning yourself, that sort of thing. We have awesome assistive devices that can help you with that. Um, while many visually impaired um, persons are able to figure out for themselves how to do daily activities such as cooking or cleaning and grooming, there are others who really require training. I'm having a session tomorrow with a group of ladies of Sapuia, um, just to talk to them about grooming, um, how to t- apply their makeup. We all want to look beautiful, Karen. We are we're all girls. We want to dress beautifully. We want we don't want to wear colours that clash. We want to look stunning when we go out and when we go for a job interview. And this all p- forms part of O and M. Um, sorry, am I talking too much? No, I'm fascinated by all of this. Yes, it, it, it is just an amazing 
um, world that you actually enter when you, yeah, when you when you deal with, especially our beautiful ladies who are so uh, meticulous in terms of how they present themselves. Um, yeah, it, it's a, isn't it a, a vast array of fields that we must that we must cover. Um, then there's um, also a set of devices that the visually impaired person can make or buy to make activities such as identifying money or pouring liquid easier. We have little devices that you hook onto a cup or onto a jug that will help you to pour your liquid and it doesn't land on your lap, you know. Mm. Um, the O&M instructor also provides such training and assistance. It's really amazing what we can do nowadays. Every client is different. And training can take weeks or even months for the visually impaired person to achieve his or her required level of efficiency. And this safety, oh, my word, when last have you been to Salt River? It has been a while. It's okay. been a while. Okay, I want to invite you to join me one day and let our O&M practitioner blindfold the two of us. I, it, you know, Karen, it is so flippin' um, scary to cross a road. Even with the assistance of a person or a guide dog, it is scary when you can't see. Your independence and safety, just think about safety, is taken away from you when you I'm, can't see. I'm certainly going to take you up on that offer, Lizelle. I really, really am. Let's just do it. I'm going to definitely give you a call and come and do that. But before we go, I want you to tell me a little bit more. You mentioned earlier it was the Cape Town Society for the Blind's 85th anniversary this year. What Have you got any special events happening? Can people pop along? I know you've got a fabulous online shop. Can people come to the office and buy things from you guys? Yes, you are so welcome. We have a stunning coffee shop, number one. Come for your cake and coffee and your light meals, healthy meals, during the day. But apart from that, we have a, a beautiful showroom and we have a beautiful store in the waterfront at the uh, organic food market um, to go and look at our more, I would say, food-related products. And then we have our showroom at number, uh, number 45 Salt River Road in Salt River, where you can please come and visit us. And our beautiful new ranges, from baby baby ranges to indoor to outdoor furniture and also stunning, stunning modern lighting, light, lighting lampshades. It is absolutely gorgeous. Please come and visit us. And then I just want to say that, yes, thank you for mentioning the 85th anniversary. We have an array of events that's going to take place. And I would love to, from time to time, to post you with, um, little heads up of what's going to happen Please in the do. near future, but we have a jam-packed year. Oh. Please visit our website. How about that? Well, I was Just going to give that up because I've already been on there. I've already got some fabulous things from there, but you must go and have a look because, honestly, it's a plan. Get out your credit card and go and buy some stuff off the website. The stuff is amazing. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And for an internet shopping aholic, if whatever you call them, I don't know what you call those people, but I'm one of them. I love buying things on the internet. And, um, yes, you can, you'll find yourself wanting to buy lots of things off that website. I'm going to give you the address in a moment. Lizelle, please keep, give me a heads up as the year goes on with all the things absolutely. that are happening. And I'm going to take you up on your offer i'm going to come and visit you and we will go for a walk why not that'll be fantastic i, dare you. I, I will i will be there i will definitely <laughs> and i will report back on my adventures 
you know, it'll be Corin's Adventure Day. So I will certainly Fantastic. do that. But thank you so much for your time this evening and for chatting with us. And thanks a lot for the invitation. It was really great to speak to you. Only a pleasure. Thanks so much, Lizelle. Okie dokie. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Lizelle von Weck is the CEO of the Cape Town Society for the Blind, or the CTSB. For more information on the wonderful work they're doing, take a look at their website. It's www.ctsb.org.za, or you can call them on 073-287-5355. And as I mentioned, they've got a wonderful shop on that website, ctsb.org.za. Go there. You'll be amazed at the amount of beautiful things that you can order from them. Absolutely amazing. And if you're in Cape Town, they're in Salt River, 41 Salt River Road. So pop in and visit them for tea and cake. Sounds amazing. The Disability Report with Karen Key. Well, last month, March, was Intellectual Disability Awareness Month and Cape Mental Health focused on the theme, The Right to Education, From the Cradle to a Career, well, to focus on the upscaling of services to people with intellectual disabilities. And joining me now is Carol Bosch, a social worker and senior manager at Cape Mental Health. Carol, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Corinne, and thanks for having me. Carol, it's one of those things, you know, you mentioned intellectual disability. People aren't terribly sure what it is you're talking about. So maybe we can just define what intellectual disability is all about. Okay. For me, it's easy to, to say that in terms of intellectual disability, we're referring to, I always want to say it's a learning disability, in that um, the person's ability to learn has been compromised. Um, and so what happens in terms of the learning, um, the, the intellectual disability, it impacts on the adaptive um, functioning of the person, and that would be the conceptual domain, which is the language ability, the ability to read, the ability to write, the ability to reason. The social domain um, is the other domain where the person's ability to interact with people has been compromised, as well as the practical ability uh, domain, and that is where your ability to take care of yourself. So when you look at those um, three domains that have been impacted on, you know, it impacts quite a lot in, the per- in terms of the person's functioning. There are also different forms of intellectual disability. It can range from mild to profound. Yeah. You, you, in terms of it, it, it goes according to the IQ of the person. So the person could have a mild intellectual disability. And, the, you know, it could be, you know, that the, the, the ability to learn has not been compromised that much. So the person is still able to live a fairly normal life. They're able to interact with people. But you can see, possibly in terms of the person's ability to reason, that has been compromised. Um, then you also get moderate intellectual disability where the person has got less um, self-help skills and would require more care, and then you go to profound and, you know, to severe and profound. Um, and so the profound per- a person with a profound intellectual disability would have very little self-help skills and would be completely dependent on others to care for them. Now, I mentioned that March was Intellectual Disability Awareness Month and the theme was the right to education from cradle to career. Now, that is one of the biggest concerns is that services as far as education for people with intellectual disabilities is not up where it should be. Definitely not. I think, you know, initially, you know, when when somebody is born and they present with with, with some delays in in development, um, often it takes a while, and especially it only sort of, you know, comes to the fore when the child goes to school. Um, And unfortunately, we do not have good enough 
detection systems in terms of picking up that there's, you know, something wrong with the child. So often the person goes undiagnosed. Um, they go through the school system even without, you know, being assessed um, and then sort of leave school early because they feel that the school is not for them. They're not able to learn. They're frustrated. They develop low self-esteem. And it's all because that we're not able to identify if somebody has a learning dis- or intellectual disability early enough. Do you find that there's a, is there more of a, a lack of, of support and education for younger people or for people sort of in their teens or is it across the board? I think it's across the board. I think even at preschool level or even, you know, yeah, before they even enter the formal schooling system, that, you know, there are obvious signs that somebody, there are some problems. Um, and parents are maybe not, um, they're not able to pick up on those things initially. Um, we all live busy lives. And so, you know, the fact that our children are not just going to school, that's enough for us. Um, and I think only sort of late on when the child goes to school and really presents with, you know, not an inability to learn. They're not able to concentrate in the class. They're not able to, they're not able to come back and say what they've learned at school. Um, I think more and more the child then becomes frustrated with the system. Um, and unfortunately, our Department of Education is not that keyed up in terms of making sure that, you know, when a child presents with, a, with some kind of problem or some challenge, that they're able to direct services to, to the child immediately. The sad thing about all of this, though, Carol, is for children, young children, who possibly are not coping at school and the parents don't quite know what to do with them, but the parents have to work and then the children get left at home and that's when they end up possibly being used because I would imagine that they're very susceptible to, you know, being told all sorts of things by not the correct people. And these children possibly are used by gangs or get involved with the wrong sort of friends, if you like, and because there's no protective workshops, excuse me, until they're 18 years old. And so these children are pretty much floundering around by themselves until then? Yes. Unfortunately, because, I mean, by the time they're, they're supposed to go to high school, which is sort of between 16 to 18, often because there's delayed development and, you know, they're not progressing. So often by the age of between 14 to 18, they're frustrated by the school system. And I think there's a huge stigma also within the school system. You know, they are teased, they are bullied, um, they're frustrated, and they just they don't want to stay within the system. So it's very difficult to keep them motivated and to say, look, you've got to stay there until the age of 18 when you can go to a protective um, work environment. And so a lot of them leave school at the age of 14. And, and if you look at it, they, they're easily influenced by people mm. out there. They have problems in terms of reasoning. They have problems in terms of, you know, really um, making, you know, identifying, you know, what people's intentions are. Um, and so they fall victim to, to people in the community who would use them for criminal activities. And often they are the people that, you know, will have to go to court and face the music because they were caught with, you know, items on them. Or So, so they're really definitely being used within the community um, by people. What Now, as the Cape Mental Health, what services are you rendering to people with uh, intellectual disability? Um, well, we render um, various um, services to people with intellectual disability, but it's specifically for people with le- with intellectual disability. We have our special education centres, and yeah, you know, it, it could be children with severe and profound intellectual disabilities, but we feel they have a right to learn, and so they might the, the, the progress might be a lot longer. And the focus there is really not on teaching them anything academic in terms of reading and writing, but rather how to take care of themselves. So if it is making a simple sandwich, that is a big achievement for our children. So we feel that, you know, each child has got that right to develop their own skills because everybody is unique. 
Um, and then also in terms of our protective work environment also, where previously the protective workshops was really a place where we would send people and they would be taken care for, for, you know, eight hours of the day. Now you're finding that we're a lot more clued up in terms of um, preparing people for open labor markets so that when people come in off at the age of 18, come into our workshops, they're able to, you know, progress from the work skills, possibly into internship or learnership and then go on to be employed um, in the open labor market, making sure that the person is supported throughout. Um, and I think, again, it's, it's about making those opportunities available for people with, with intellectual disability. So you, the Cape Mental Health Base, you run three centres, I think, for children up to the age of 18, and then, if possible, they got moved into protective workshops after that. Often the, the children at our special care centres, they're not able to go into our, our protective work environment because the level of functioning is severe and profound. So what we've um, initiated with them was to have adult special care centres at our protective workshops. Um, and so they would go into that, um, you know, into that kind of setting. Um, but in terms of people with mild and moderate intellectual disability, they are the people that could be referred to our, our protective workshops, and that is where they are then upskilled and trained in a particular way that's cleaning or caring for elderly or um, caring for disabled children. Um, th- those are the, the things that we have on offer. They are able then to follow a course like that. I was reading a rather frightening statistic and some information I received to do with Intellectual Disability Awareness Month, and it said that about 2% of the population are persons with intellectual disability, and it's estimated that up to 40% of those cases are preventable, and 100% of fetal alcohol syndrome cases are totally preventable. Yes, I mean, fetal alcohol syndrome, obviously, if the mother does nothing during pregnancy, Mm. you know, you won't have a child with fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, the, the thing is also in terms of a lot of, um, you know, in terms of intellectual disability, there are various causes, um, but some of them happen after birth. Um, and so whether it's maybe, you know, the child falling or being involved in an accident or something like that, some of those things could have been prevented if he had been in place. Um, so it's very sad sometimes when, when you see some children who, um, through no fault of their own, sit with something that's a lifelong um, disability. I mean, this could be something of taking drugs during pregnancy or drinking during pregnancy, all those sort of things. And then, of course, we have an alarmingly high motor vehicle accident rate in this country. But we also need to be aware that when we are in a car, because this is something that absolutely incenses me when I'm driving and I see children running around in the back seat of the car. Mm, Please put those children in the car seat or something because I'm I'm about to have a nervous breakdown in the car myself watching this. I I don't know what else to do. absolutely ridiculous. I tell you, I mean, the risk that that, that people Mm. actually put themselves and their children, it's really, it's unthinkable. Um, But I also think, you know, the the fact that we also have quite a high rate of substance-induced psychosis. Mm. We also, mothers are, are... drugging and also taking alcohol in during the pregnancies obviously impacts on the development of the child also. And so you're seeing more and more young mothers with, with children with fetal alcohol, so I mean, it's very sad. And it becomes very, it becomes almost a cycle then. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a case of, well, you know, the mother is battling her own addictions and yes. now she's got a child with, yes. with issues and it's, and it's difficult. Take, well, exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's not able to really, you know, take, care of, of, of proper care of, of the child in and also because this child now has special needs. Um, the mother is just not able to cope with all of that. I need to make it very clear and I'm sure you'd agree with me Carol that for people listening out there not all children with, with, with intellectual disabilities are as a result of 
possibly a careless parenting thing that somebody's done. No, a no, lot no, of no. children are lot, born indeed, with that. It, it, it could be genetic also, yes. so it could be within the family. It could also be that something happened um, just before birth or during the pregnancy, something went wrong, the mother had some illness, um, or it could also be if any trauma happened during the birth. So, you know, while, while there's a certain um, proportion of, of, of where we know this is where it comes from, um, there's still a, like 25% or so where we don't know what the cause is. But, you know, like I said, it happens either before birth or during birth or in early childhood. But, it's, you know, in terms of intellectual disability, it's got to be diagnosed before the age of 18. Um, and so, you know, that, that is where you would look in, in terms of a diagnosis thing. So why you, when you say it has to be diagnosed before the age of 18, why is that? Um, because after 18, you know, we... we, we we anticipate that before the age of 18, the person would have developed as, as you would see should. Um, it's in terms of somebody with, with also, it's got to be there since birth, you know, so, so mm. you have to track it from 18 back to the birth, that, that, that there's always been problems in terms of learning. Um, somebody who has a, is involved in a car accident and has a head injury um, would also present to somebody with an intellectual disability, but the functioning is there because of the, the, the car accident um, and not because it, it's linked to intellectual disability. Okay, so that explains what that is. Mm-hmm. Right, well, Carol, it's, it's, it's something I'm telling you, I've learned an awful lot from you. Thank you very much indeed for chatting with us this evening. It's really been most informative. And uh, Cape Mental Health people want to get in touch. Can they approach you if they need more information, if they'd like to find out more, if they have, maybe have some questions? Definitely, they're more than welcome to contact us. Um, I've got this at the 021-447-9040 number. Can they call you on that? Yes, as well as, you know, we also have a website. So it's www.capementalhealth.co.za. And then we also have, if if people want to, you know, if they have concerns, they can send it to info at capementalhealth.co.za. Um, and then we will respond to those individual requests also. Okay, because I think sometimes people just, you know, they don't want to think that they're being a little bit overdramatic. Maybe I, maybe it's just me that thinks this. Yes. And it might be nice just to get a sort of a, possibly some information from you before they go to the doctor to have it checked out, yes. which would be great as well. They're absolutely welcome to phone us. Well, that's fantastic. Carol, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this a evening. Pleasure. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks so much for your time. Good night Good to you. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Carol Bosch is a social worker and senior manager at Cape Mental Health. For more information, you can take a look at the website. It's www.capementalhealth.co.za or you can call them on 021-447-9040 or you can email them on info at capementalhealth.co.za. Well, that's it for the Disability Report. Next Tuesday, the 8th of April, I'll be back with our monthly phone-in when we'll be talking about allergies with Professor Robin Green, so join me then. But in the meantime, I'll be back with time to travel tomorrow evening at 9. But if you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, take a look at the Facebook page, Disability on SAFM, or email me directly on disability at safm.co.za. And don't forget that Ari Sealis mentioned that if you would have a CV and you're possibly looking for employment, they can't guarantee anything, but they do have lots of contacts. And he said, please just send it through. You can email them on info at quasa, Q-A-S-A, info at quasa.co.za. And if you'd like a copy of the red flags for autism, just drop me an email at disability at safm.co.za and I'll send you all those notes. Well, I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. But right now it's Stephen Coker's time with some late night music. Hello, Stephen.